live for another episode of First Strike. But before we start the show, just got to plug our main sponsor, FaceToFaceGames.com, the number one place to get your Magic the Gathering singles. we got a very special guest with us tonight. But before we get to him, just want to repeat that. Our first strike apparel is finally available for purchase. It ships this Thursday. So go to manondeprived.com slash apparel to get your hoodie or one of our two shirts, black or pink. And uh, the Thursday will be the first run. And after that, we're going to have a bunch in stock but so that you guys can order on demand. But we're not going to put too much. It really depends on how the first run goes. So if you really want to make sure you get a piece of merch, uh, get it before Thursday, get it tonight. Uh, don't forget. Okay, tonight, Rob can join us. Uh, Lombardi, uh, he might be, his wife might be expecting uh, their second child tonight. And uh, Brian's out. So we've got Andy and Derek in this episode. How's it going, Derek? Derek, like, eyes, your eyes wide open when I mentioned Rob. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, he can't be here because he's having a child. Like, that's a pretty good reason not to be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what? Yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't making it sound like a No, no, no. I just like... Man, like, where's Rob? Oh, he's having a kid. Like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good reason not to come to our podcast this week. Right, right. Yeah. Actually, I assume that's the reason. I mean, that's the reason you you mentioned, and I'm like, yay, everyone's really yeah, happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Christy said on Facebook that she's having it soon. Like, I think Rob said it was due three days ago or something. So, like, yeah, it should be coming. <laughs> All right, hopefully it comes in good health, and we will tweet uh, Rob, like, Lombardi on Twitter. Congratulations, good luck, or whatever. Uh, we all wish him well on the show. Uh, tonight's special guest is a friend of mine, uh, known him for a while, and I'm really happy to get him on the show. He's the captain of the Mana Traders Pro Tour Team Series team. He's also really known for a certain archetype, having top eighted four GPs with affinity. Uh, he's top eighted eight GPs overall. Self proclaimed to, I mean, amid, amidst the sucking at drafting. We've got Alex Magilton in the podcast. How's it going, Alex? It's going great. What's going on, everyone? Do you still stuck, suck at Limited? Oh, yeah. I went 0-6 in draft at the most recent Pro Tour. Oh, right. We, we had talked about it with Shaheen on how we were like, wow, this guy, blue-white uh, control at the top of the standings for, for Constructed, but then we found out that you went 0-6 in Limited. <laughs> was it actually you sucking, or, or was it bad luck? <laughs> um. It's hard to say. Uh, it certainly felt like bad luck at the time, but I don't think I put enough effort into understanding the draft format. I kind of assumed it was like triple Ixalan, so I drafted it like that, and it's very much not like that. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll get we'll get into a bit of limited later, but let's let's get uh, into it. What people want us uh, to talk about, which is modern uh, GP Phoenix just happened. You managed to finish top 16. You posted on Facebook just in the 16th spot with affinity, of course. Um, Congratulations, uh, Alex, on another good run. Thank you very much. Uh, And you posted a a nice article on a blog post on your blog, neverdraftingagain.blogspot.ca. Curious that it's .ca, actually, Alex. Are you a, a secret Canadian? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've been called that before, um, <laughs> but I, I think that's just uh, it, your country converting it to your thing, because whenever I go to it, it's .com, so who knows? Uh, we, we think that these, when we see as the casual viewer that, that don't really know 
exactly how certain pros or, or non-pros test and we see someone that top eights or, or has results with the same deck over and over again, we, we assume that they've been grinding it forever instead of maybe possibly on and off. So what was your process into coming up with the deck list that you did? Well, uh, prior to the unbans, I played a lot of blue-white control, which it sounds like you talked about before with Shaheen, and I thought that was the best modern deck by a lot. Uh, and then they put Blood, Bra- Blood Braid and Jace back in the format. And I started with blue-white because I thought, oh, wow, they just get to add Jace. It's only going to get better, right? But as it turns out, I'm not smart enough to figure out the right Jace list of blue-white, so I wasn't winning as much. Uh, there was a lot of Jun going around. Jun was getting a lot of hype. And when the format kind of devolved into that, uh, especially after the mocks, I thought, okay, uh, the last time Jund was really good in modern was when I was playing a lot of affinity in 2012, 2013. So I looked at some of the lists from that era and I built one that was kind of similar to one that I had played five years ago and updated some cards like Spire of Industry, obviously, um, played it out in some leagues and I discovered, Hey, this isn't as bad as I thought it was. Uh, then I found a blog post, uh, from another pro player named Alan Wu, who did a bunch of math simulations to find optimal configurations for decks like Eldrazi Tron and Affinity. And I took some information from that blog post to tweak my own numbers a bit, and I was really happy with the results. So I came up with a list. I was really pumped to play it in Phoenix, and I did really well. Oh, that's really interesting. I think that I'm going to take the time to... I read your article. I saw the link to that uh, piece by Alan Wu. It was pretty long, pretty in-depth. I'm going to have to spend like a night or at least a a few hours to to properly consume it. But it it talked about how he was trying to figure out uh, the odds of like the pros and cons of how aggressive you should mulligan. And and you can mulligan to five to bust an opening hand more often than you think. Was that the conclusion from that? Yeah, he was doing it specifically for Eldrazi Tron because apparently with that deck, you can open up a lot of hands that look like they play reasonable magic, but they don't actually put an Eldrazi on the table until turn four. And that's not really what you want to be doing with that deck. So he thought, how aggressively can I mulligan to get that opener? And he wrote a a simulation to figure it out instead of just playing a million games. And apparently the answer is you can mulligan to five pretty aggressively looking for a good opener. and then he just took that program and applied it to Affinity in terms of how many zero drops you can play to get Affinity's busted openers. And you you put, I'm just going to read from your post, the conclusion he came to was that in addition to four Ornithopters, every zero cost card you play increases the likelihood of having two mana on your first turn by around 2%. Furthermore, it doesn't matter much if it's a Memnite or a Welding Jar. As long as it costs zero, you're gaining a huge uh you're getting a huge gain on your busted openers. Yeah, which was surprising to me because I would thought, okay, I need the Memnite to enable the Springleaf drum draws, but apparently the difference between a Memnite and a Jar is not that much, and I never really liked Memnite that much. So if I could play a different zero drop, like Welding Jar, that has a lot more utility, I'd rather do that. And that's how I came to the 2-2 split in my deck list from the GP. Oh, so Welding Jar, because like Memnite, you, Springleaf drum needs a creature... But Walding Jar gives you mana because 
Um, it gives you mana because it gives you a lot more combos on turn one with your Mox Opal that just instantly turn it on. Okay. Uh, I had a lot of draws at the GP where my hand was something like uh, Dark Steel Citadel, Mox Opal, and then any other zero drop, and I'm already playing a two. Hmm. Andy, as someone that's been playing Affinity for the past few years, does that surprise? Does this sound interesting to you? Uh, yeah, this stuff is uh, is always pretty interesting because you always get stuck in uh, playing kind of the same list that you've always played. And I always like the pros who like go the extra step and show you all the math behind it and like why you've been just kind of wrong the whole time. Even though you feel like you were doing everything right, you were doing all the things that everyone else was doing, but it's just not mathematically correct. And uh, I love when pros point that out, like Frank Carson and, and I guess Alan Wu. Mm-hmm. It's a- uh, what was your split, uh, Andy, that you've been playing? I played one jar, two mem night. Oh, but, so uh, cutting down general. Yeah, so just like one less zero, but uh, I guess it's certainly worth exploring because jar was part of a lot of great openers for me. So, uh, Alex, uh, you, you had other interesting splits here. Uh, you had two blast, two cast, um, one master. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that? Sure. Um, the thought cast is specifically because of the rise in Jund and other grindy decks. Um, before this, I think it was standard in Affinity for you to have four Galvanic Blasts and no thought cast. And the reason for that uh, was actually back to when Twin was super hot because you needed Blast to prevent them Twin comboing you. Uh, and then Twin got banned, but you still needed those blasts because there were a lot of decks like Malira Pod, where you needed to kill one creature to prevent them from comboing. And then all the way up until today, where the new hot combo is the Devoted Druid Vizier. Uh, all those decks, they put creatures into play, and if you can't kill one of them, they just infinite you and you die. So you needed four Galvanic Blasts to deal with that. Uh, but my theory behind cutting some blasts for thought cast was that if a deck like Jund is going to be popular, uh, Jund is going to kind of push out some of the creature combo decks in general because Jund is a, a, a heavy removal deck. So naturally, I'm going to adjust my colored card split to deal with more of what I expect to play against than less of what I don't. Um, that's the 2-2... Two, two, Thought cast blast split, uh, and the 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 three drop split is the same way actually. Uh, the previously you would play a lot of masters in formats where you would want to race. Uh, I remember for a brief period of time last summer, Storm was getting a lot of hype as potentially the best modern deck, and a card like Etch Champion is not useful for Storm at all. So you would want to build your decks with more masters and less champs. Um, but fast forward to today where there's more grindy decks and less uh, super fast combo decks, then you want those champs back to, to be able to keep up with, uh, with all the removal that they're throwing at you. Hmm. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and in, to round out your article, you, you talked about some specific choices in your cyborg including uh, your two rejections including uh, one ray of revelation why you played zero thought sees and uh or other discard effects and and i recommend anyone to to go check out again your blog 
at neverdrafting. Again, .blogspot.ca. Uh, how did the metagame uh, look to you in Phoenix? Was it uh, pretty diverse, or did you feel like a lot? there were a lot of certain decks, a lot of uh, Bloodbraid Elves in, in the format? Uh, I would say uh, it was a pretty typical modern experience. Uh, I played 13 rounds after my two buys, and I only played repeat decks twice. So I played against 11 distinct decks. Uh, and of those 11 decks, I think only two of them were Bloodbraid decks, and two, maybe three of them were Jace decks. So it was pretty different than what I was expecting for the format to just be flooded with the unbanned cards that were everyone's hyping up as overpowered and taking over the format. That was not my experience at all. Uh, it seems pretty normal. All right. Well, one of our cast members... Uh thought that the that the world was ending due to this embanning, but after these this tournament and a few like SCGs, it, it seems like it's not that big of a deal. Is that your impression after this tournament as well? Yeah, that's my impression for right now. Uh, I'm willing to believe that there is a super busted J stack out there and nobody's found it yet. Uh, but until they do, I think that you're good to go in modern if you just pick up the deck that you know the best and try to make some mindful adjustments towards uh, what people are showing up with now, like more Jaces and more Blood Raids. Okay, so Derek, you're, you're still currently... Looks like you're currently wrong. Thoughts? Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll concede that I may be a little bit more wrong than I let on in the first place. But I don't think that there's enough data to, data to say that this is entirely true right now. There's only been like one modern Grand Prix. There's only been like a couple modern events. So like, we'll see. Blood Brain and Jace are busted. Ban them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. Uh, any, any adjustment you would make... Alex, uh, with your deck, or, or you're pretty happy for anyone will, uh, wanting to pick up a Finney in their next modern tournament? Um, yeah, I would, ab- I would definitely still recommend my list. Uh, there are certainly some changes you can make depending on the decks that you expect to play against. Uh, I'm still not that happy with some of my matchups. I think that my uh, graveyard hate overall is... Uh, I, I kind of skimped on it for this tournament, and I got lucky to not get dredged into Oblivion. Uh, and I'm still not that good against blue light control and storm. So if for whatever reason you expect to play against those decks more than you usually would, there's some changes you can definitely make. Uh, and they would involve, uh, well, they, they would involve different things for the different archetypes, but you know, for against storm, you have to be able to race faster and disrupt them more. And for blue white, you have to be able to, to grind harder against them. Uh, but really, that, that's, that's all on, on what you expect to play against. Uh, you know, there's a lot of room for adjustment in the list that I played, uh, but I think it's a really good starting point. Um, Andy, are there any uh, funky one-ofs that, that you want to pick Alex's brain about? Alex, uh, we had mentioned in previous shows how, how people were messing around with uh, the hope of... I oh, mean, I can't pronounce this at all. Jirapur. <laughs> Jirapur, oh my god. <laughs> Um, and, and Hazret and stuff like that. Have you seen these lists? And, and what do you think about uh, these creatures? 
Oh yeah, I've seen all these lists. Uh, even though I stopped playing Affinity for a while last summer, I always tried to keep an eye on the people who are still innovating. Uh, the Hope of Gearifer, I think, is an innovation from uh, Peter Tubergen, who plays a lot of uh, Affinity on the Star City series, and a lot of the lists that he comes up with are, are really nice. Uh, I noticed that he plays One Hope, in all of his main decks in favor of, of Vault Scourge. Uh, and I think that's a fine change. Um, I think he did it when Storm was basically at its peak popularity. And the reason for that makes sense, because if you have that card, you know, one out of every handful of games, and you can prevent them from comboing off on their turn, the turn before you're about to kill them, you're getting a lot of value out of that 1-1. One, one. Uh, and other than that, it's pretty functionally identical to Vault Scourge. Uh, I mean, not having lifelink is a big deal, but also not paying two life for it is a big deal. Uh, so that's 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 a change that I can certainly endorse in some spots. Uh, the Hazaret, I know that my Mana Traders teammate Ricky Chin Ooh. was really pushing that Hazaret in a lot of his affinity decks. Uh, I think he even wrote an article for Mass Drop about it once. Um, Hazard's a really strong card. Uh, I was always a little hesitant to take it into battle when there were a lot of paths to exile running around. Uh, but if Jund is really popular, uh, Jund, only card I can think of that Jund has to beat it is Liliana, and even then you have to catch it by itself. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty in favor of trying out funky one-ofs in spots that you think might be good. Like, if there's a lot of Jund, you can try a power card like Hazaret. If there's a lot of Storm or otherwise combo, play that Hope of Giripper. And uh, there are plenty of other cool ideas that I would be interested in trying out. So it's like extra etched champions, basically? The Hazaret, you mean? Yeah, in those matchups, I guess. Because, like, yeah. etched champions were... were... To me, we're, we're always like a huge trump card in that matchup. Um, I don't know if you had time to check any of the Dominaria spoilers. Uh, we had speculated, like some people were speculating, maybe New Karn might see a home. Have you had a chance to look at New Karn? Um, I'm not sure of the exact text. I know the plus one lets you kind of mini impulse. Is that right? Uh, so, so it's four to cast, five loyalty, plus one. Reveal the top two cards of your library. An opponent chooses one of them, put that card into your hand, and exile the other with a silver counter on it. And then okay. if you minus one, you put a card you own with a silver counter on it from exile into your hand. And I think the, the minus two is interesting. Um, if you uh, create a zero, zero colorless construct artifact creature token with this creature gets plus one, plus one for each artifact you control. Some people had mentioned, like, maybe... Because this allows you to still not be dead to Stony Silence, but you know this being a four drop, if they have Stony Silence early, like and likely you're even able to cast this with your artifact mana. So I don't know. That's interesting. Um, now that you repeated the card text to me, I remember reading that ultimate and thinking, "Wow, this card's not that good in the context of standard." But I don't know why it didn't occur to me to to think to try it in Affinity. That's a, a pretty strong ultimate for. Well, it's not really an ultimate, just like a, a minus two. That's the minus two? You just create a zero, yeah, you create a zero, zero colorless construct artifact creature token, yeah. Okay, wow. Um, that is really interesting. Uh, I'm a little nervous about cards that cost four mana, but that card 
sounds really strong in Affinity, and and particularly in in Affinity matchups where you expect to have to grind. Uh, mm, yeah. Ooh, a, a positive outlook that, that this might that this might see play. Andy, does I, I thought I thought Alex would be skeptical about a card that costs four. Uh, I, I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic. I think you got to try everything, but I love when they print new cards that I could potentially use in my affinity deck. That doesn't happen very often at all. Hmm. Interesting. Andy, oh, we're seeing hope has read. That yeah. is interesting. Karn is certainly interesting because it goes. It starts at five. You can minus to it twice, and it's still around. So. If there is a four drop that ends up being playable in the deck, and it's colorless too, so you can cast it even if you don't hit like any of your rainbow lands, it might be the card. Like it has a lot of the right things going for it to get played in Affinity. And the reason it feels a lot more optimistic around here is because Rob's not here. <laughs> don't have big negative Rob here today. <laughs> we're all we're all more 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 positive. Um, the RPTQ coming up. Actually, before that, Andy, any questions specifically on Affinity that you you want to ask Alex or like Andy or or Derek? Um, I do. Let's see the card. So, you is Ray of Revelation actually good, or is it sort of a a little bit of a pet card? It's definitely a pet card because <laughs> I think I'm the only one I've ever seen that plays it over and over. Uh, but whenever I cast it. I think it's really good. Uh, I cast it once in the GP, and I destroyed a Stony Silence with it. Uh, felt great. And uh, I've used it many times in the past against a lot of matchups like Boggles, where you know your opponent will put a Daybreak Coronet or something on their Boggle and think they've got you. And all it takes is one card to kind of give them a, a, a reality check. And say I, I still got a shot in this matchup. Uh, I imagine it, it's it feels a lot like um, when people cast Ancient Grudge against me is when you cast Ray of Revelation against them. <laughs> uh, so I, I think it's effective. It's not always the best card to play because in modern I think you have to be very careful about how many sideboard slots you have for certain matchups. And a card like Ray is a super specialty card. Uh, when you could play a card like Wear and Tear, which is pretty much the same in most spots and gives you a little extra utility. Like, I'm never bringing in Ray of Revelation in the mirror, but I would happily bring in Wear Tear in the mirror. So uh, you got to be careful. But I expected a lot of boggles. I expected the boggles hype train to still be moving from the mocks uh, and Grand Prix Toronto. So I definitely wanted to pay my respects to my potential boggles opponents. Hmm. Any questions from you, Derek? Um, given the results this weekend, would you, if there was another modern Grand Prix this weekend, or if you were playing a modern event this weekend, would you run this exact 75 back? Or would you change anything specific? Um, I, I don't have any ideas for specific changes I, make, I would make, but I do think that I need to revisit the list. Uh, Mostly because uh, two of my three losses in the tournament were to humans, and humans won the Grand Prix, right? Yeah, yeah, I ended up winning the whole thing. Yeah, humans was also one of the only like multiple decks in top thirty-two. There was like I think four copies in top thirty-two, four or five, and the other decks that show up are like there's two hollowed ones. 
and it's just a bunch of other random one-of decks, basically. Okay, wow. So four humans decks in the top 32. To me, that says that humans is super-duper real, and that was a matchup that I was kind of taking for granted. I just assumed that I was ahead, and when I played the games in the Grand Prix, uh, there were a lot of interactions uh, that I didn't understand, and I, I made bad plays because of them. So uh, now what I'm thinking is that if I really want to stay ahead in that matchup, I need to be a little more careful about how I build my deck and maybe include some more cards that are better against humans specifically. Uh, I don't know what those are yet, but uh, if I were to have a modern event this weekend, I think that would be number one on my priority list. All right. Um, Let's just jump in a different direction uh, to limited, just to pick your brain a little, Alex. Um, Why... Like, ever since I, I, I've known you, when I first met you, you came across someone that didn't love Limited, as your blog stated uh, at the top of the taglines. Like, I'm never drafting again, me after every draft. Uh, this blog contains recaps of my drafts so I can discuss them with other people to improve my Limited skills. So ever since you started this blog, has your Limited skills improved? Like, where are they now? Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, I actually love Limited. I think I would prefer to play Limited over Constructed almost any day of the week. Uh, I've just never been that good at it. And every time I think I'm starting to get it, uh, it feels like uh, Limited fundamentally changes in a way that is uh, too fast for me to pick up on immediately. So my relationship with Limited over the past, I don't know, decade has always been, uh, it always feels like I'm trying to catch up. uh, And that's why I started the blog. That's why I try to think about Limited way more than I think about Constructed. Uh, And I have noticed that I have improved in Limited in a lot of ways, but it's Limited is my experience is that it's it's not like modern at all i would say that modern is my best format and every time i gain experience in modern about a, a deck or a matchup or you know a, a theory concept it tends to stay with me and it always feels usable um but limited and maybe this is why i think limited is so much more interesting than constructed uh limited is is feels completely fresh every time I play it. It feels like I have to learn uh, all the principles from the ground up, and I'm not that good at doing that. (laughs) (laughs) There there are some specifics of certain formats, like, uh, I guess, off the top of my head, like some like to, what, the amount of toughness that's important in a certain format, is, and, and some people are able to figure that out like super quick. Um, so, how, how do you intend to to improve this result? Do you think you're getting faster and faster at figuring it out with every passing format, or do you feel like you, you're constantly resetting to square one? Definitely the latter. I feel like I'm getting slower and dumber when it comes to. Whoa. Um, I notice that when I play. Uh, especially a new limited format, I don't always immediately win. In fact, I hardly ever do. And I tend to attach myself to the strategies that I lose to. 
And it takes me a long time to kind of climb out of that hole. Uh, that's, I think, why my rivals of Ixalan draft result was so bad. Because when I first started drafting, it was uh, right when the set had come out on Magic Online. And I lost to a bunch of two-drop trick decks. And I was like, wow, okay, so this is another two-drop trick format. And so those were kind of the decks that I drafted at the Pro Tour. And I got slaughtered because the format ended up being a lot slower, a lot more um, reliant on evasion. And you could be more creative with your decks. You didn't have to, uh, you know, draft the two drops super aggressively and build a a super aggro deck. Um, Mm. But it takes me a while to figure that out. And uh, hopefully... This was the format, and that that o six result was a nice wake up call to tell me that uh you got to be more mindful of of what strategies there are whenever you start learning a new draft format hmm. wow, I feel like I can relate so well uh to that to, to your experience of like not losing the early drafts I think um, for a stretch of time, I would be someone that would maybe let's say dominate. The, the local FNMs, no big deal, constructed, but would do really poorly at the first couple of drafts or the pre-releases because you know I just didn't understand the the limited format as fast as everyone else. So that was definitely a, a weakness. So I really relate to that experience. Um, do you is is the team did the team help you with that? Like figure something out faster, or or you didn't really work on limited together? Um, do you mean my pro tour testing team? Right, right. Uh, I, I would say that, uh, the, uh, the team, I think, uh, that I tested with, which is team mass drop, I think they did a really good job of understanding the limited format. And I think that the only reason I lagged behind was because, uh, I didn't put as much effort into, the rivals format as I normally do for limited. I did way fewer drafts than I normally would when practicing for a pro tour. Uh, And I did that because I chose to focus more on modern. uh, And I thought that that was where I would really see my, uh, my chance in the pro tour doing well. And it, it half worked. I mean, I did really well in modern, but uh, you, did. <laughs> you crushed modern. <laughs> you know the rest. <laughs> so your main takeaway after that tournament was that the format was much was significantly slower than, than you thought. Yeah, it, you could be more creative uh, with how you build and draft your decks, uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of strategies strategies that I prefer actually. I, I like the creative strategies with lots of colors and power cards. Uh, you have more freedom to do that in Rivals. At least that's my current impression. I haven't played that much more since uh, since the Pro Tour, but uh, I do think that the draft format is a very distinct experience from Triple XLN. Okay. Um, what What's on uh, Doc for you? What, what were your next tournaments? What, what do you have lined up? Um, well... Funny enough, my next tournament is uh, a rival sealed tournament. I'm going to play the uh, the regional PTQ. I think that's coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, and then after that, I'm going to play Grand Prix Hartford, which is modern, and Grand Prix Columbus, which is team sealed. So what are you going to take? What are you going to do? How are you going to approach the RPTQ? What are you going to do in the next week or two? Um... 
I think the next time I get a chance to play, which might be this weekend, I'll start to by just playing a couple of uh, field leagues. Uh, and I think that's all I'm going to do because I think I'm going to play the online qualifier, and I believe that you don't have to draft in that one at all. Okay. <laughs> so I guess my strategy for the RPTQ is to uh, reduce the amounts of different formats I have to learn for limited uh, since uh, we've established that I'm, I'm not that good at learning them. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alex, you've been an awesome guest, so, so we'll let you go. But anything you want to plug, any sponsor, anything at all, uh, we've already uh, mentioned your blog many times, but, but what else? Uh, yeah, I definitely want to give a shout out to Alan Wu for writing that blog post that inspired me to look at Affinity again. That was awesome. And I want to give a shout out to uh, my Pro Tour Team Series sponsor, uh, Mana Traders. Uh, it's an online deck rental service. Uh, it's really cool. It let me try a lot of modern decks when practicing for the Pro Tour and the Grand Prix. Uh, and uh, if you want a discount on your first four months, you can use uh, promo code PTTEAM. And you will get a uh, 15% discount for your first four months. Ooh, sweet. Right. Um, th- thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I had fun. I'll talk to you guys later. Talk to you guys. Talk, talk to you guys later. Talk to you later, Alex. <laughs> okay, that was uh, Alex Magelaton, uh, eight time GP top eight competitor, four with Affinity. One of them was, was extended, but who cares? Um, just a master of affinity. I, I actually dug up an old tweet that, that I showed Andy and Derek. It, it was kind of, <laughs> to me, it was funny. It was, um, let me pull this up really quickly. It was between, oh yeah, it was Cedric Phillips tweeting uh, after another GP top eight from, from Madge. She's like, Alex Madgelaton, the best affinity player in the world. Top eight, another modern GP. Yes. And Tom Martel, call, name your stakes and method of determination for better affinity player. Cedric replies, Tom, this is not a debate. He's the best, slash end. This is stupid, even for you. He isn't top 10, probably not top 25. Um, and then Chapin, Cedric, serious question. Have you met Paul Rietzel? And Tom or Douglas, or are these people in best with affinity? John Finkel, LSV, Rietzel, Owen, Magelaton. Um, I do think that, to me, it it was interesting, obviously, like a Twitter little war between the pros, uh, but it did make me reconsider how often I would tag someone an expert of an archetype once I've seen them uh, put multiple results with the same deck. I shouldn't be quick to assume that they're an absolute, you know, great magic player. It just could be that they're just running the same deck all the time running hot, whereas other pros are just playing different decks uh, and have more variety. So you see them with different type of decks. That doesn't mean that they couldn't be a master of an archetype if they played it uh, a lot. Uh, What what do you think about all that, Andy? (laughs) Uh, I thought it was just like rain on the guy's parade. He's just trying to be happy for the guy. (laughs) Like, is does Tom Martell think just make sure you don't say anyone's good at anything ever again because Owen is better. <laughs> like that's like sure it might be technically correct, but it's it's not the time or the place to be like, well, actually, if you dig up the raw data, John Finkel has the best affinity win percentage of all time. <laughs> no one cares, man. Oh, I, I think I think People get me triggered when you call someone the best affinity player in the world, I guess. I guess that's what happened there. Um, 
Derek was also amused by, by a little tweet. <laughs> I thought that's the funniest thing I've ever read in a while. Not because said was it, being... it was in 2012. 2012? <laughs> that came out in 2012? Wow, that tweet aged really well. Oh my gosh, what quality content. Not only because like Cedric was being completely hyperbolic, but Tom Martell just calls him out on it. And it's just like, man, Twitter's great that I get to watch this interaction between these two people where they could just have this conversation in public and, and I would just never see it. I was just blown away. Just <laughs> so good. Everybody should get Twitter. I, I think I think Twitter's awesome. In fact, um, I've started to, even though Twitter is not Facebook friends, I've been telling people that I tend to tweet some of my more personal stuff on Twitter over Facebook uh, just because it doesn't... Facebook, what happens when you post is that it might come back on later and you, and you feel like you might be spamming people who don't really care. I feel like Twitter, you can tweet it and it's timely. It's there. And like if it bugs someone, it's, it, unless you're tweeting a lot about it, it's just gone. It's not there anymore. So I just feel more comfortable doing that and not feeling I, I'm spamming randoms when, when I tweet that stuff. So I've been using it more for that, whereas other people still use a, a Facebook a lot for that. Um, Let's jump straight into the number one thing uh, the nation wanted us to talk about, which was the Bernicini, uh finishing in, in top 32. But he was climbing up the ranks throughout the weekend. Um, it was still today one of the top Reddit posts uh, titled Bernicini being allowed to play still this weekend. GP Phoenix, uh, Cedric Phillips lost Alex and tweeted about it. And uh, I'm just going to finish this red post. Uh, the, the responses weren't few, but numerous with remorse that he's allowed to play. Alex has been banned multiple times and playing against him is a nightmare. You have to be careful because of his demeanor. Give special attention to everything he does. And it makes playing magic less fun. This gets brought up a lot. And Derek, are, are people exaggerating, overreacting? Um, you know, are, are people talking about him way too much? Yeah, I definitely think that um, people are overreacting about the Alex Bertoncini thing. Um, their arguments definitely have some weight, but I just think that if you put that much effort into thinking that your opponent, like, not that you shouldn't be cognizant, but just like it doesn't, it doesn't need that much attention and it doesn't need that much notice. Like, I don't know, he did his time, whatever. Right, I I don't think it's that big of a deal as a lot of people are making it out to be, but I think people will react about everything. So, right, I think that might be the hot take, and we'll start with the hot take first because I feel that's definitely not how the majority of people feel. Uh, Take it away, Andy. I think he should be banned forever. The second time he got banned, just that's it forever. I think uh, when a player gets banned the first time, I w- in a perfect world where there's no human error, I think you should just be banned forever anyway. And you can appeal it maybe if you want to. But the second time you get banned for cheating or lying to a judge, I think like without a doubt in my mind, you should just ban them forever. The upside of letting these few players who have been banned multiple times play is so little compared to the fact that... I- that like, look what's happening on Reddit. All these people are upset that this guy, who's a, certainly a cheater, absolutely a cheater, gets to play Magic. And he's... I don't believe in the he's 
he's did his time. This is not something that you have to have access to. This is an, an activity that you were allowed to do and that you took advantage of time and again and stole from people and absolutely need to be banned. I think the only way I would consider letting people like this back is if they go out and tell everyone, like, I cheated. Here's how I cheated. I stole lots of money from you guys. I, like, when people don't admit it, it makes me feel so mad and that they get to come back. So they just get to, like, deny that they cheated for a year, come back, and then they'll just get to play Magic. That's not fun. It's not fun all the, the cheaters that I know that are out there, and they still get to play. And I hate the fact that you could just get banned for a year, come back, and they'll probably cheat again. It's, we see time and time again that these people keep cheating. So I think the second time, you got to go forever. But we're, we're at this point, I mean, I guess they made their decision. It's too late to go back. So is it? Is it? Just get him out of here. He got he got a game loss in the top eight of the PTQ at a GP, GP Houston or something, for having marked cards. Get him out of here. You should have, <laughs> like, a, a good idea that a, a friend of mine, Kale, came up with is, like, so let them back after the first time. But put them on probation. If they got dirt on their sleeves, get them out of here. If they, if they give the judge a funny look, get them out of here. Just, like... The second they do something shady again after getting lit back, ban them, ban them forever. What do you think about that, Derek? There's, there's like a fine line between allowing people to make mistakes and punishing them for their actions. Um, I do honestly believe that a sentence should have been longer. I don't think you should get a lifetime ban if, if, like, if you continually cheat. And I think there are other steps to take. Um, the the Mark Card things at the PTQ is definitely sketchy, but if you heard that story about any other player, I would just probably think that they needed to change their sleeves or they played with those sleeves in the Grand Prix or they were old sleeves and they didn't realize. Um, because it's Burton Cheney, I think he gets the pitchforks. Not to say that, you know what, I think he probably was cheating for sake of argument because he's Burton Cheney. But there's, the like, the, the reason the DCI didn't just ban him there is because they have to try to be as fair as possible and they have to carry the same amount of weight with everybody. And I think for that specific in- instance, it's good because if you just throw bans at him for marked cards after he's already served his sentence, then other people are just going to come down whenever somebody has marked cards at a PTQ or whenever somebody has marked cards at a Grand Prix. Right. And we've all been there. Like I remember, I, when I was watching Rob play for the top eight of, or one of his matches for top eight of Grand Prix, New Jersey, and he had an Avacyn in his deck, and the judge came over and said, I can see your Avacyns through your sleeves. And we all looked at his sleeves, and it took us 20 minutes before we could see the text box. But they were marked cards. He wasn't trying to be malicious, but if it was a person with a bad record, like, I don't know. It just, it's, there's a reason why these rules just don't punish people right away. Um, do I think he'll cheat again? Yes. Do I think he should get a lifetime ban after that? Yeah, sure. Like, and he's right. Enough is enough. But I think to some extent you have to give people the chance and maybe two chances is too many. Uh, that's not for me to decide. That's for the DCI to decide. 
I just think people are overreacting. Uh, I'm only suggesting you give. So I'm suggesting that the first time, it's totally like you you let them play again after. But it's got it's got to be a year. They got to be sad. They got to be upset about like they they got some time to think about it. But I only want it because of human error. If people are like vish like maliciously cheating and are getting banned for cheating, then they're they're willing to steal from from you, Derek. They're willing to steal from you. They're willing to steal from your friends, and it's literally steal it's not quite literally stealing money but it's it's there's a value to it and there's a real value you can put on the amount that they steal from people and the unless they admit it i am just not willing to really forgive these people the only reason i'm willing to think about stuff like letting them play again is because of human error because it's going to happen eventually so the second time, I can't imagine you thinking that banning someone like two years or three years after the second time they've been caught cheating and banned for cheating. Why do you want them back? Where is the upside? What is there to be gained? No, I, I definitely agree. His, I don't know what his sentences were before. I don't know what his first sentence was. I don't know what his second sentence was. Um, I think it should have been like probably two years each or at least a year and then two years, like something that escalates, right? Because... Like that, it's just not enough time. But like, I think about Marcio Carvalho, who also got caught cheating. I think at least once. I don't know if it was twice, but he's he's been seen to do sketchy things and get like he did the the Hornet Queen thing. He went on to win or come second at the Mox last year, and he's like top eight pro tours and all these things, right? And that's what I'm saying. Like he cleaned up his act. He doesn't seem to be doing sketchy things anymore. And he's actually a good player. Will I watch him at a, as a Hawk or like a Hawk if I ever see him at an event? Yes. But do I think he deserved that chance to play again or the third time? Yes, because I honestly believe that everybody deserves that chance. The third time. You think the third time they deserve the chance? Alex Bernicini played this weekend and cashed. Do you think he cheated this weekend? I... It's certainly possible. It's within if if he has the opportunity, he will cheat. Yes. Okay. I don't know where to go else with this conversation. What's, what's the benefit? No, like, I I don't know. I just don't. I don't like just pushing people out of the game because they're cheap. Like it sounds That's bad. That's exactly sounds what bad. you want to do. That's exactly what you want to do. <laughs> Yeah, I, I gotta have the side with that. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. Whatever. You're right. That's, I don't like. I want to believe that he's changed. That's what I want to believe, and I want to believe that people who see this happening think that it's bad for the. Oh, we lost KYT. Anyways, we so like, I just like I got a I got DQ from a PTQ once. Because I accidentally bribed my opponent. And if I ever did something like that again, I would have probably got a year ban. I didn't do it on purpose. Not to say that like Bernicini wasn't doing it on purpose, but I, like, I honestly want people that are playing Magic regularly to not be afraid of rules and judges. You know what I mean? And like, I think that's... When people overreact like this, you get a, hard, a, like, a large amount of dissonance coming down. Like, if you're cheating, you deserve to be kicked out of the game. Or if you're cheating, you're stealing. Or if you're doing this, you're like doing all these things right like i play against people constantly and they're cheating but like they 
they're just not playing the game properly, right? And I, like, there, I played a PTQ at Toronto, and my opponent got disqualified because they played a relic into their chalice. And I'm, I knew that they were cognizant of it, and I think the story that they told the judge that they were cognizant of it. I don't know if they got banned. I don't think they knew that that was cheating. But if they get banned, like, do we think that they should just never play again? Like, what what happens from there? Like, I, I think we should, like, allow people to come back in. That's what the second time's for. So you got DQ'd from a, a PTQ for accidentally bribing an opponent. But you didn't get banned because they did an investigation. And from that investigation, they've decided that you... <laughs> did not purposely bribe your opponent. If they think you did and you were aware of what you were doing and why it was so wrong, you'd have been gone. They do an investigation. You don't just get accidentally banned. You can, you can definitely get accidentally DQ'd. It's totally within the realm of reasonability to get disqualified accidentally. Maybe you misspeak to a judge during an investigation that's gone on very long and you accidentally change your story because you barely know what's going on at this point because maybe it's a long day or whatever but they're not going to ban you unless they think you did it on purpose and they're not going to think you did it on purpose unless you're a piece of crap and you've shown this kind of behavior before that's where that process is already weeding out the people that it could be human error or the people who deserve another chance to come back I i think if we give dci the choice to decide who does and doesn't get banned we should also trust in their ability to allow players to keep playing and so i think if they're allowing him to come back then he should be allowed to play i i don't agree because i think that's it's just a dumb decision to let them come back because they're not weighing the pros and the cons it's just a bad decision to let this guy come back there's no good that can come from it either he he doesn't do well in anything and maybe he has fun as a person, but you don't really need to care for one individual person when it comes to a company this large, when they're dealing with the happiness of lots of people that could be affected by him being allowed to play. And it's, it's just, it's, it's insane to me. It's insane that he's allowed to play again. It's just a bad decision. I don't think you can be like, well, we're going to let them be in charge. We have to have faith in the whole process. We're allowed to not like parts of the process. Right, right. So we're going we're gonna to move on from this, but I think that we're all in agreement that people should get second chances, but the, the current system as it is, unless I'm getting you wrong, Andy, that, that it's not strict enough, that the penalties are not harsh enough. Uh, yeah, well, he keeps coming back and he keeps cheating, so. <laughs> like, would it be, how, how would you like it set up? Like, one first ban one year the next one you're out of here or for the first one to be even longer as well first first ban i'm open to discussion on whether it could be one year or more okay second ban i think it should just be lifetime i think even one year feels too short even for the first one unless it's like you're, you're leaving it open for 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 accidental bans that you have to account for human error as likely or unlikely as it is. Yeah. I, th- I think it really depends on what you're getting banned for, whether it be six months or a year. I think the second ban should be two or, two or more years. Lifetime is just really heavy. Like, you're banned for life. It's like, okay, okay. like that's a lot. Two years, two years is basically like, get it together. You know better. Okay. 
I do wonder if you're bad for life, if you could do something, sell appeal maybe in like 10 years or something, come back. Go, go play Yu-Gi-Oh! Go play Yu-Gi-Oh! Say I'm clean there and, and come back. Um, Andy, quick, quick thoughts on uh, what were your quick uh, what's your quick take on Saito for, for you? Is he a hall of famer? Has he done enough in, in the community? I think a lot of his fans think he's done a lot positive through his shop, Harry Ruya, and also with his Twitter posts about new decks, every standard format. I don't know if he still does Saito Wayfinder. I, I think he's been still been doing it last year. Um, so w- what's your take? If you had a hall, hall of fame vote, what's, what's your quick take? I would not vote for Saito until he has one to two more PT top eights post him being a known angle shooter at at the very least. Derek seems shocked or, or what? I don't know when he started cheating. I just pulled up the Wikipedia article. Oh, suspended for 18 months due to consecutive disqualifications. A prize split was interpreted as being bribery resulted in disqualification of the Asian Pacific Championship. Following that, Saito was disqualified for inappropriately attempting to get his opponent disqualified. As a result of these disqualifications, they suspended him for 18 months. In 2010, Saito was voted into the Hall of Fame. However, two weeks prior to the induction, Saito was disqualified during Grand Prix Florence, leading to an 18-month suspension from the game. Wizards announced without further explanation that Saito would not be part of the Hall of Fame based on the 2010 ballot. What did he do? Was it was it just slow play or was it... Uh, the f- the first one uh, was uh, bribery, yep, and the second one was a uh, slow play involving uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor. Actually, your your favorite. Oh card. wow! So he was up a game in a match, and he tried tried to he's like try- asked his opponent to read the card an obscene amount of times, clearly trying to stall the game out. Yeah, I th- I think he should be allowed. Like he has five Pro Tour top eights, twenty four Grand Prix top eights, five hundred and six pro points and he's like known in the community at this point like what is this is one of those things where i think like he should be allowed to play like this guy's good for the community at this point he made a couple mistakes in the past like what what is the line here you know do you vote for him in the hall though i would uh well if wizards put him on the ballot he'd probably be at the bottom of the list like there's a couple other people that I think I would vote first. But um, if he somehow showed back up on the Pro Tour and Wizard said he could be in the Hall, I think eventually I would vote for him. But it's been eight years since he's been on the PT, I think. Yeah, he hasn't played a, he hasn't played a PT. Recently, right? He top-aided Singapore in 2009. Kobe 2009 and then Columbus, Ohio in 2010, and that's it. Oh, wow. Oh, wait, no, those are the ones he won. I lied. He top eighted Rotterdam last year, Mexico City in 2016, Lyon in 2016, and Santiago in 2016. So, yeah, he's still around. Um, he top eighted Pro Tour Berlin in 2008. So, like, that was his last Pro Tour top eight. Would you like, so if he, if he showed up to the Pro Tour and top eighted again, and they allowed him to be on, I would. Vote, definitely vote for him. Like five PT top eights is so many, right? And he has a win. The guy's insane. <laughs> like like Chapin's in the Hall of Fame, right? Like that, yeah, that is a, a whole nother ethical debate. Totally <laughs> different. I I don't know if it's totally okay. Well, maybe it is totally different, but I, I think I think he should be allowed. In. I didn't feel Chapin had at the time didn't have the. Uh... 
the results. Like he he made he clinched another, like he clinched a he had a win after right or yeah he won Born of the Gods right right yeah, right he won Born of the Gods and then got voted in I think the following year no no he was there before I'm was he sure. yeah I'm oh. pretty sure he was there before and, and uh, most of it was due to his uh, contributions to the game I think well not most of it he he also had um, a decent playing record I, I just didn't really compare to the some of the people. Like one of the, some of the stronger people that are in the hall already, I didn't think the record, but the the writing, the articles, and his community contribution put him over the top. Is what how I remember it actually. So yeah, so Chapin has five Pro Tour top eights, one win, um, only three hundred sixty seven lifetime pro points, and only four Grand Prix top eights. So compared to like Saito he is nowhere to be seen. Like, Saito blows him out of the water. Um, and, like, I could pull up other Hall of Famers, but I just think, like, if... there, I don't know a lot of the history of cheating from Magic back in the day, but I'm sure not everybody in the Hall is clean, and I'm sure not a lot of pros from back in the day are all clean, right? Like, I think Saito is one of those, one of those people that should be allowed back in. Maybe he should make an apology, but like he's done so much for the game at this point. I don't know. It's it seems kind of ridiculous to me that he's not in at this point. Hot take. Hot take, Andy. I think I think I don't know. I think uh the crowd, the audience isn't gonna like Derek after this one once again. I think another O2 uh for Derek. Uh he did indeed get inducted in twenty uh twelve. Shape as I, I quickly scanned through this wiki. Uh, and then he ended up winning the PT in uh, 2014. So, so after he was voted in. Anyways, just to say that there's a lot to go into. I'm not saying he deserves or doesn't deserve. I'm just saying uh, what, what he accomplished at the time. And uh, a lot goes into your voting. Social uh, contributions do t- get taken into account. And that's why I think Jerry T, one of my favorite players, one of my favorite people, on the PT doesn't actually need uh, a stellar resume to get in. He can get there with, with a resume that's within range and everything he's done for the game and how um, amazing of a personality he is for, for the community, for, for the competitive community, his contributions also through his podcast. That's free to listen for everyone. The game podcast like that is going to push him over the top. If his resume is anywhere close and he's getting there, he almost won uh, two PTs within a span of years, and that I don't think we've seen that in a while. Um, Sean McLaren could have done that; he was close as well. He won, and then he finished second uh, to Yvonne Flock, I believe. And and Jerry, if it wasn't for a terrible lantern matchup, could have been a two-time PT champion, which is insanely impressive. But finished in second. Anyways, I think that uh, what have you guys been playing? Uh, Andy, uh, I've still just been running uh, blue black control on Magic Online. I've posted uh, my list and all the like uh, results I have on my spreadsheets into the First Strike Nation. I think it's just it's one of the best decks, certainly one of the best decks. I think it has a, a slightly favorable matchup against like the other best decks. Like uh, I'd rather be on the blue black side of it than one of the than the mid range deck side of it. Basically, because Search for Ascanta is such a ridiculous card. And Derek, what have you been jamming? 
Uh, I'm on Grixis, um, sort of energy mid-range. Um, there was a couple lists that came out with the last week that were Grixis. Um, the difference is in my list, I'm only playing 26 lands. I'm playing four Champion of Wits and three uh, Orla Virtuoso, two Gear Hulk in the main, uh, three Scarab God, one five Mana Lily. Whereas like Owen, I think, is playing one Chandra, 28 lands, one Nickel Bolas, and something like four Sensor. And then Brad is also on 27 lands or 28 lands, and then a Chandra or two, and then like our mains are... Oh, Brad's also not playing Champion of Wits. Which I think, if you're playing over 24 lands or 25 lands, you have to play Champion of Wits, because you have to hit your land, and you have to pitch the lands that you draw when you flood. And that's, that's my take on Grixis. Or blue-black, I guess. Some standard content. I mean, Andy, you've been, you've been uh, streaming Planeswalker Tron. I was checking you out because I, don't, I usually hate streams, but recently the, the streams I've been jumping into are, are kind of either have great music or, or the commentators or people playing or smooth uh, like yourself. Like I, I jumped into Joe Demestrial's chat uh, stream with Pascal Maynard, and I thought that was awesome. Then I, I watched you and Elliot, and that was sweet. So, you know, Planeswalker Tron, what the hell's going on with that? Uh, so it's a uh... As with uh, most of the weird decks I ever play, it all starts with Elliot sending me a deck list that looks terrible. And I have a lot of play points on Magic Online, so I'll play almost anything. I'll run it once. And so I, I ran it like a few months ago, and I remember just like going Othanissa into Tron on 3 and just nickel bolassing people. And I remember just being like, this, this is the best. And then uh, Tron came up in popularity again, and so I figured I would run uh, I would run the Planeswalker Tron deck again, and I only went three two in my league, and every single win was all due to the fact uh, of the normal Tron cards, but uh, I think Chandra six mana Chandra is so close to actually being good in Tron that it's worth consideration. Uh, some of the other cards, not so much, but Six Mana Chandra was actually very good. It's really hard to cast, but uh, Othanissa actually helps you find your Tron lands a little bit, helps fix your mana for Planeswalkers. I don't advocate it as uh, better than other Tron decks, but it is uh, certainly very fun, and uh, it still plays turn three Karn, and uh, it's hard to be bad when you have a turn three Karn available in your deck. And you could do it just as often as the other decks, maybe more often because of Othanissa. I'm not sure. Hmm. Like sometimes it was funny just to see you get thoughts and seeing like they see Nicol Bolas, know that you can't cast or click you. And it's like, ah, eh, care who cares, right? Who cares that you have that card? Yeah. So currently the record we we have a 65.5 win percent. <laughs> it's like what? Why? How? I just. Getting, uh, just drawing the tower when you have the other two, just getting really lucky. It's good. I think, uh, with modern, uh, it's good to explore sometimes because you never know when something is going to end up being good. Like, uh, Death Shadow, people, it took people forever to, to get on board with Death Shadow, and that deck's ridiculous. Right? Did you, just, did you just compare Blazewalker Draw to Death Shadow? <laughs> They were both unknown quantities at one point. <laughs> oh, this deck that I'm winning with a bunch maybe is the next best thing. Just like Death Shadow won a bunch once. 
I you literally know? led with it's not that good. <laughs> this is why I, I don't play you, modern. I guess you gotta win one. This is why I don't play modern. <laughs> Imagine just joining a modern queue. Your opponent goes, Oath of Nyssa into six mana Chandra when you're on humans. What about Elspeth Sun's champion? That's in the deck. <laughs> why not both? <laughs> <laughs> um... Matt, Matt Kelly's in the chat. I, I want to shout out to him. He's part. He's actually a first strike producer, and he submitted a, a question. Um, he, he wanted us to talk about the Bergenchini stuff as well, I think, and also said, "Hey, why not talk a bit about um, Masters Twenty Five? And I got my friend Dave Seville in uh, to finish up for, with our final topic. Give us a little fifteen minutes. Uh, Dave is actually co-host of." Men from Moto, a podcast that's hosted also on MattaDeprived.com. I think all our shows are actually awesome. So I think I suggest subscribing actually to the whole network, if especially if you're new to, to getting to uh, Magic Podcast, because there's Men from Moto. Sometimes there's uh, stuff from Flores or, or BDM. There's definitely a, a whole range of stuff. But right now, the most consistent stuff besides us for Strike Hype Club and uh, Men from Moto are the most consistent stuff. F- focusing on limited. And also want to take a chance to to plug the course that I had Travis do, uh, his co-host, entirely on Rivals of Ixalan, uh, exclusively for the nation, four videos, 20 minutes long, for people who are starting from ground zero, taking you all the way to 60, in my opinion, especially for people who haven't touched Ricks all that much. Very good stuff to look at, um, especially since you can watch it at 2x speed to get you really quickly into form for your RPTQ. So without further ado, here, here's what, how's it going? Dave, how are you tonight? Things are good. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. All right. Uh, just to pick your brain on, on Masters 25, is the format fun? Decidedly, yes. And this is coming from somebody that doesn't normally like Masters sets and doesn't normally like Cube on Magic Online. So uh, I was a hard sell coming into this format. Travis did a really good job pushing me over the top. And then when I sat down and cloned my opponent's Niv-Mizzet, uh, gave, it, gave it Hexproof, and then infinitely untapped it with as much blue mana as I had the other day, I was hooked for life. <laughs> so there's some cool stuff you can do. Uh, what, what made some of the older Masters set not as fun? Um, I think my inexperience, so I think compared to a lot of players, is I'm relatively young when it comes to Magic, even though I played it when I was a kid, so I'm in my 30s now. Um, I didn't take it seriously until I came back to online Magic, or came to online Magic, around Theros, I think was my first online draft. And so, you know, that's only, what, four years, I guess, four and a half years that I've been playing. And uh, so my, my, wit, my width of knowledge is is not as wide as, as a lot of people um you know i see a lot of modern cards and i have to sit down and read them and things like that so cube and master sets aren't really targeted to me but but this set feels a lot like when i started to play magic and and in the kind of the core sets were popular and uh this is this feels like an overpowered core set and i really like core sets when i was learning and so it kind of takes me back to the start you know m13 m14 days um, but I also get to explore now that I'm more of a spikier player and uh, a better player, I would say, um, I can express my cute combo side. I can really put the gears to my opponents and, uh, it, it it's a lot of fun so far. Okay. So we really want to hear with, with some of our listeners, any funky archetypes that you've drafted in your 
you know, you, you told me before, Joe, you've been part of like six drafts, some with Travis, some are your own. So any funky archetypes that you've, you've discovered? Yeah, absolutely. So Travis is a big fan of the four to five color good stuff. Um, there's a lot of land cyclers, um, uh, Kroos and Tusker, and there's also a, uh, there's one in every color, Kroos and Tusker, and then there's the land that cycles for any basic as well. So you can pretty much play four to five color good stuff. Um, the downside is, is that I don't think there's a lot of good stuff to be, to be played a lot of the times. So you end up just playing, um, you know, good to average cards out of all of the colors and you play like solid removal and maybe a bomb or two. Um, so that's, that's a really good thing to do. I've been trying to make the assembly worker deck happen, um, whether that's on my stream or other people's streams. And um, it always seems to be there, but it never is. There's kind of really only three cards you need in that. And then you need as many of them as possible. That's the assembly workers, mistress factories and the self assemblers. Um, they're all assembly workers. You can pump them with each other and then you can fetch more. Um, that's sometimes there, but it's pretty rare. It seems like the favorite one that I've done so far was, uh, blue, red horseshoe crabs or things that are like horseshoe crabs. So I tried to force this on stream the other day and it worked, except I only had one horseshoe crab. So it kind of didn't really work out in that, in that (laughs) regard. Um, but I did have the enchantment that you put on a creature that turns it into a horseshoe crab. And then you get an X proof and, and quicksilver dagger. It was called freed from the real. It was like a Kamigawa card. Two and a blue aura, and you can either pay a blue to tap target or tap the enchanted creature or pay blue to untap the enchanted creature. So the idea with crab combo is horseshoe crab is a one three for three mana. You play blue, blue to untap it. And then you abuse effects like heavy ballista, tap to deal two damage to something. So now you're paying a blue mana to ping things. Quicksilver dagger, you're pinging your opponent for one and drawing a card. Uh, or retraction helix, which is uh, tap. To, to bounce target creature uh, and then you basically can bounce their entire board so it's like a four or five mana cyclonic rift so you kind of abuse all of those things you give something hexproof and you just kind of wipe their board or bounce their board um, or hit your opponent for like 16 over the course of two turns that's my favorite thing to do in this format so far wow so horseshoe crab trying to find the cards that are that are key yeah i've got it right here so you need horseshoe crab and then you need Heavy Ballista or a Quicksilver Dagger, which is a, a gold enchantment card. It is, let me find it here, one red-blue for an enchantment aura. A creature has the ability to nug your opponent for one and draw a card. Mm, wow. Yeah, and then Heavy Ballista is three for an artifact. A creature does not untap, and it has the ability to tap. This creature deals two damage to target creature or player, and it costs equip four. So you can't really use that to bounce around to all of your creatures. Like if you're playing tokens, you can't just hit your opponent for eight by paying, you know, an infinite amount of mana. You really need to be abusing either horseshoe crab or fake horseshoe crab freed from reality in order to do that. Hmm. Interesting. And you, you had mentioned assembly worker, I guess trying to, trying to come out with like, and hope to get a relentless rat deck is, is also a dream. <laughs> It is a dream. I think I prefer the Timberwolf, Timberwolf pack deck if I'm doing the collect them all um, because they're two drops. And I think if you can go two drop into three drop and they're both wolves, you have two three threes, which is really good. Um, you, you kind of have to remember with the rats is that I think they count all rats, not just yours. So you can accidentally pump your opponents, whereas I think the wolves just count your own. But I think my favorite collect them all is uh, the Kindle. Uh, limited all-star Kindle is the greatest thing ever. If you played a deck with eight Kindles, I think you're you would you would easily 3-0 and probably 6-0 if you played another three rounds with it. So I really like I really like the catch them all. 
Hmm. What about eight wolves, though? I think that would be sick. Also, eight, eight wolves versus eight Kindles. I think I take the eight Kindles every day. Yeah, I mean, we'd have to goldfish that, though. I think. Yeah, it depends on what turn we're at. <laughs> and exactly. if, I, if, I can, if I can manage enough wolves or something. Exactly. Another really cool deck you can do is there's a uh, the typical uh, black anything sacrifice deck, and um, the the key thing with this are the Phyrexian Ghouls or the Fallen Angels, which are your three and five mana sack outlets, I think, in black. Mm-hmm. And you can combo that in pretty much any color. Goes really well with red because of Active Treason and the Token Makers. Goes really well with green because of Token Makers. Um, if you can get uh, um, Ambassador Oak, I think it is. It's the four mana three three that makes a token that goes really well in that as well. Um, so, so you can do some pretty funky things with that. Um, also in black, it has things like the Dusk Legion Zealot, and you have one drops, um, whether it be Ruthless Ripper or the Vampire Lacerator. There's some pretty cool things you can do with that. Uh, black also has a card that you can cycle to give a creature fear, uh, so it can't be blocked except by black or artifact creatures, assuming you're targeting your Phyrexian Ghoul. Um, so you can steal a lot of wins with that, but if, it seems that people are quite prepared for that these days and are either trying to go underneath it um, or just kind of trying to play giant 1-6 blockers in your way. Like there's Primal Clay you can play out of the sideboard, which can kind of shut that deck down sometimes. So um, I, I think the point here is, though, is that because it plays like a core set, um, compared to Rivals of Excellence, we just came off of a format that was kind of on rails, right? Like if you're not drafting black-white vampires, but you're drafting a black-white deck, you're doing it wrong, right? Whereas in this, if you're drafting a black-white deck, there's a few different directions you can go, and you're more drafting a color pair that does what a color player normally does, as opposed to trying to draft an archetype or, or, a, or a tribe, generally speaking. So I think what you can do is, is you can pick the good cards in the colors you want to play or that are open, and then you find these little synergies. Like I said, like you can play Horseshoe Crab in blue-red, but maybe that's only a three or four card combo. And then you're still packing your deck with 16, 17 solid cards that you can win a game with. And you don't necessarily have to just win off the combo, even though that's the best thing you can do in magic. Hmm. So approach it like a core set, I would say uh, just a high powered core set. I'm taking it away a lot from, from what you're talking about, especially like just scanning the set again. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, the, the, Five color good stuff might not be as good because there's no like crazy. It doesn't seem there's like a crazy uncommon bomb or there's not that many like crazy bombs. I'm going out of my way to play. I think. And also your your other thing about the the black red deck, it's pretty cool because in, in previous corsets, some corsets it was one of the most like the best archetype for one of the corsets, and I remember playing that a lot. And to see it back again with active treasons because people don't really want multiples of those except if you're in that specific archetype and uh, the only reason that it can be bad is when someone else is uh, on that specific archetype with you so i'm thinking a lot just from 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 having you on for a few minutes Uh, andy have you gotten the chance to check out the format um have you seen any of these archetypes in play uh yeah so i saw Twitter, I perused it, and a lot of people were uh, posting mono black aggro lists that looked pretty ridiculous. So, both drafts I went in, I I passed a Korea Justice and took like a black card and just tried to force mono black aggro. And I I got one with six of the two mana two three that uh you lose two life if uh, you didn't attack this turn. 
and just dark, dark rituals and just 15 lands, a sigh, a sigh of the shinobi or something. And I just beat, beat the crap out of a bunch of people and killed them on like turn five and six, like through almost anything. What? So, What's the archetype? Yeah. Like a lot it's of just mono black aggro. So it's a lot of vampire lacerators, two mana, two threes, the sack guy, and just like 12 unearths, as many unearths as you can get. So you just trade your like two drop for their card, and you unearth it and play another card. And you just play 15 lands. Well, what's a dark ritual for? Just for faster? For, for two more mana. Powering out three <laughs> vampire lacerators on turn one? I don't know. Yeah, Whoa. dark ritual is way better than it looks in that deck. Wow. Like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds quite insane. Like, uh, coming up with these hyper-aggressive... Like, how, many, how many dark rituals is too many? I'd probably play like two or three. Dave, you second that? No, I say one. <laughs> I don't. I don't like it at all. But I mean, if you're if you're playing the hyper aggressive black deck, um, and you can power something out, it's really good. It just you're probably. I I think I would rather have another lacerator if possible in the deck. But I don't know if you're you're probably three owing with that deck. There's not a lot of decks that can deal with it. I actually had a blue deck the other day that took phantasmal bears strictly because of the black vampire lacerator deck, just so I could have a speed bump in the way like it is it is like the monster under the bed in the format i would think whoa it, yeah. it's it's there it's good you just you just kind of have to build around it to beat it like in the blue deck there's a, a the fathom seer and the the dragon eye savants two morph creatures that you can either obviously play on two but they just kind of stonewall decks like that um and you know red is probably okay to deal with it except you're burning removal spells potentially on it um but i think that's the good thing about the format is that there's all of these different archetypes and they all kind of play against each other and you see kind of this ebb and flow in you know aggressive versus mid-range versus control or counter combo and there's this wide spectrum of good and bad decks like i've three owed with you know the horseshoe less crab horseshoe crab deck and travis like one twos with a solid living death deck like none of this stuff makes any sense and i think that's why this format is great okay i mean i can't wait to try the blue red horseshoe mono black aggro black red aggro uh all these different archetypes that uh you mentioned five color good stuff probably not not convinced that's where i want to go based on just talking with you you could do a lot worse than drafting cyclers and morphs and land cyclers. Like, I think if you draft those three things, I think you have a pretty consistent and reliable deck. Toss in a little bit of removal and you're looking pretty good. Like, Woolly Loxodon in green is a dumb card. And, and it looks so just plain on the surface. But if you remember Khan's block, a card like that was stupid. And then you play in white and you mix in like a cloud shift or something like that. And all of a sudden you're blinking your six, seven on turn four or supernatural stamina where it dies and comes back flipped. Like there's all sorts of stupid things you can do as long as you don't get run over by the fun police in mono red or mono black. <laughs> I think I'd rather be the fun police. <laughs> um, Power to you if you want to do that. Right. Derek, are you, are you going to jump any, any cues? I know you're just grinding more ser- like serious formats but you know there, there are pptqs around the world uh no I, i've uh i've already queued for this this uh season's dark ptq so i actually can't play pre-tqs um the only reason i would play would be to pick up the cards uh like getting some jaces or some ports but they, they've already dropped quite a bit uh which is actually like as a competitive player maybe wanting getting wanting to get the legacy i'm really happy that people are drafting and opening more cards of this format because 
it brings out more, like, I don't have to pay $200 for ports. Like I don't have to pay $200 for Jace's and Jace's will still say really high, but like, it's, it's really sweet for me. Um, as somebody who's actually not probably going to play the format that much. Uh, that's, that's what I like about the format. I want wizards to keep doing things like this. It's just great. Right. Um, Dave, thank you so much for, for, for jumping on for, for, to wrap up our show with us. As I mentioned, men from Moto, definitely check that podcast out. What else should people check out? How about your Twitch stream, Dave? Yeah, I'm twitch.tv slash dcivilian. That's D-S-A-V-I-L-L-I-A-N. I'm also on Twitter of the same. We do a lot of limited uh, focus magic. Don't really play a ton of constructed. The occasional other game, but come check us out there. We also just recently did a Men for Moto live. I was on Travis's stream for six hours. So if you like that kind of stuff, you should go check the replay out. It was awesome. It was all Masters 25. Six hours. Holy. It's good. He's a monster, though. He streams for eight hours a day. It's hard to keep up with him. Yeah, definitely. That full-time grind, for sure. Exactly. No, thanks for having me on. No problem. Um, you were great. And, and we'll have you and Travis on some other time together. Um, so thanks for coming on, Dave, for such, such short notice to, to give us some Masters 25, like really useful uh, stuff that people can use. Thanks a lot. No problem. Right. That was Dave Seville for Men From Moto. And shout out to our the First Strike Nation producers, Jonathan Good, Kyle Smirchik, J. Thomas Eden, Sasha Papo, Derek Pite, Matthew Kelly in the chat, Jim Murchison, and my secret Amira yet to be revealed and everyone in First Strike Nation to join uh, the Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash first strike. Learn all about how to all the different monthly tiers. Learn about how to join the nation yearly. I'm probably going to take that down uh, since we're getting deeper in the year. So if you want to get a deal on being a member for the year, definitely go to patreon.com slash first strike. Learn all about all the details. want to emphasize really strongly to get your merch that you've been asking for at madinprime.com slash apparel by Thursday, especially, well, you can wait on the next design, like the, the cap and the other stuff. But if you really want the stuff that you see now, you should get it now. The hoodie and the, the pink V-neck that Derek loves and the, the standard black shirt, get those now. I didn't have time. We didn't have time to go over this because I've yet to uh, post the results of the Emmental Open Plus it was a record-setting day, our biggest open in Alberta, and possibly our biggest open ever. Maybe Toronto had some opens that, that broke it, but we had 240 players at the Open Plus. Marcel Zafra made top eight. Chantal Campbell, friend of the show, uh, member of the First Strike Nation, also made top eight. Uh, lost in top four. She was in the running to win the biggest Open Plus we've ever had, uh, possibly, uh, at least in, in Alberta for sure. And uh, ultimately, Brett Steele, Ended up winning with Dredge, and Chantel was playing Grishelbrand uh, from, from, I don't know, probably a list that's not too far away from, from Final Nub's list. And then we have Marcel Zafra with a Hollow One deck, so a lot of uh, graveyard-based decks in the format. And if people are targeting humans, they're, they're still looking out for Boggles and stuff like that. It does seem like uh, graveyard-based decks are floating to the top in those type of metagames. And, and the top eight itself is, is very di- diverse. Um, quickly scanning. These will be up uh, sometime tomorrow. And still, you know, not a dominant presence uh, in Jace the Mind Sculptor or Bloodbraid Elf, uh, despite Derek's worries. So, you know, just play. If, if people are forgetting about these graveyard decks, like the fact that the top four had Dredge, Grishelbrand, and 
uh, hollow one just shows like just mess with the graveyard and that might be the way to go in your next tournament uh what do you think about that andy yeah i i, I basically agree with what you just said <laughs> and derek final words yeah i guess if you're trying to beat all the busted four drops in the format you should just go underneath them and not interact with them even more than weren't interacting with them before so uh yeah, I mean, if if you have people pulling to one extent of the spectrum and it's hard control or hard mid-range and you go hard combo, like people are just going to have to come to the middle and just play Jason Bloodbraid in the same deck with a million graveyard strategies and nobody can ever win and modern's an awful format. I don't know why people are playing it, but never mind. Uh, yeah, play more graveyard hate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even, uh, yeah, quick mention, even Mag- Magilton mentioned that, that he wasn't, he felt his deck moving forward or during the tournament was not uh, well equipped to face dredge and stuff like that in graveyard so maybe that's the way to go and we, we repeat that it's a cycle when people forget about these graveyard decks they come and destroy a tournament so not surprising if dredge wins the next big one and matt kelly mentions in chat the guy who ended up winning the edmonton open plus faceface open plus was the one entered at the 240th player and uh, and the tournament was actually capped at 240 so that's what is, was even more impressive. The event capped uh, in terms of attendance, and the winner ended up being the last player that was able to enter the tournament. So that's pretty. That's pretty cool. All right. Um, so that does it. I hope you guys enjoyed the modern talk. I hope you guys enjoyed the the, the chemistry uh, between Andy and Derek as they fought about bannings. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get listeners telling me Derek is an idiot. So and then the Masters 25 uh, chat. So. For Andy, Derek, and myself, we will see you next week. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a thumbs up. And we'll see you next Monday. Thanks for checking us out. Peace.